Hope you all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, it's the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, we have been studying through the book of Acts for a while. And we are picking up in Acts chapter 19 starting at verse 21. Starting at verse 21. So uh, at Remedy uh, here we stand and we read the word together. And then afterwards I'll say... This is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And the, the signifying of when you say thanks be to God is, is in your he- heart and head. Um, you are thanking the Lord that he would give us his word, that he would speak to us. But also, we're acknowledging that since this is God's word, and we are saying thank you, that the things that we hear and the things that we learn, that we also want to in turn obey those things. And so, uh, you're kind of prefacing the entire sermon in your heart and mind by saying, okay, God, whatever you teach me today... I'm saying yes to wanting to obey it. So let's all stand, and if you're able to stand, stand with us. We're reading Matthew 19, verses 21 through 41, and I'll close by saying this is the word of the Lord. And um, If you're there in your heart and mind, then you say, thanks be to God. Verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He, <clears throat> these he gathered together in the work, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear <clears throat> that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods are made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours has come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of all her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized this, listen to this, he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, men of Ephesus, who who is there who does not know... Uh, that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and from the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, and there are proconsuls. let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat.
Let's pray. Lord, I pray for us this morning as we look at a riot that happened 2,000 years ago that maybe even most of us, when we walked in this room, didn't even know happened or certainly didn't remember happened. And it's hard for us to see and understand that there's things in this that absolutely apply to our lives. And so I pray for us all to, uh, since these are God's words, to open our minds and hearts to the things that you want us to see and realize that your words have in them life and truth and that we would submit our hearts and minds to think deeply about what we're going to hear this morning and that we would want to put these things into our, in practice and apply them into our lives for the glory of Jesus in this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's good. Um, so in Acts chapter 19... Uh, we are going to see what's happening with Paul as he's been ministering in Ephesus for a while now. So I want to make sure, if you weren't here last week, that we, we know what's going on. So you can see that this riot didn't just come out of nowhere, but actually had uh, a real reason what's going on. So if you look at Acts chapter 19, looking at verse 10. If you look at verse 10, if you remember with me, Paul had just started his third missionary journey. He had left uh, the city of Antioch. He started traveling, and instead of going by boat, he went through land and got to Ephesus. And when he got to Ephesus, he had three different people that he confronted. He confronted the John the Baptist uh, converts, and he, uh, because they had not received the Holy Spirit yet, you can see that happening in the first part of 19. And after that, he went to, in verse 8, the synagogue, and he did that for three months, and he ministered to the Jews there. And after that, you can see uh, in verses 9 and 10... Uh, he went to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, there in the verse, into verse 9. And then for two years, on his own dollar, he went every day for two solid years and preached the gospel to anybody that would come for two solid years uh, in, in the uh, city of Ephesus. And the report that Luke gives us, Dr. Luke as he's writing, is that Paul's net result in doing this is for two years... Uh, He did this so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this means if if Paul was a church planter, he did an awesome job. He went into a city, he parachuted in, and he preached the gospel, we saw last week, to some 200 or 400,000 people in one city. Not everybody got saved, but mission accomplished. I mean, that's a good church planter. He dropped in, and literally everybody in the city got Got, got, got to hear the gospel. So that's a pretty amazing thing. On his own dollar. He didn't ask for funding. He didn't get a whole bunch of people giving him support. He didn't do a GoFundMe page. He just went in and he preached the gospel. He, he made tents in the morning. He preached the gospel from 11 to 4. And he went back and made more tents. And not only was this Dr. Luke's report in verse 10. But as we saw today in this text. In verse 29. <clears throat> that uh, Demetrius who has no like for Paul whatsoever, give a similar sounding report. And he says, and you see that, uh, and you see and hear uh, that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made hands, uh, God that gods that are made with hands are not God's. So it's a little bit different so that Luke tells us everyone heard the word of the Lord, but Demetrius takes it one kind of step further. Not only have they heard it, but a lot of people that heard it have actually been persuaded and turned away from idols and turned to God. To God. 
turn to Jesus. So what we can see here is that there's an amazing work that's being done. So um, this riot that we, we read today didn't come out of nowhere. It came from two solid years of Paul plodding along in ministry, working as hard as he can, being faithful, some days good, some days bad, but no matter what, he does two years of solid ministry, which brings us to these extraordinary events that happen. So um, that's the first thing I wanted to, to kind of make sure that we understood, that this riot wasn't just Paul went in and after one day, you know, everybody got mad at him. It was two solid years of plowing the gospel so that everyone in the entire region heard the gospel. The second thing I want us to think is this. Um, and this is just, you know, uh, likely something you're going to, if you grew up in any kind of um, Christian environment, especially in the 80s and 90s like I did, or you millennials, you know, last year or whatever it was, um, that, uh, that I kind of grew up in this mindset of the way the gospel affects us. So um, I've always kind of heard and thought, I, I don't believe this anymore until you know, some eight or, eight or ten years ago when we started the church, but I always kind of thought in my head that the gospel, when it's preached, is preached in order to change minds. So it's, it's change minds and hearts. That's, you want to preach the gospel so that when they hear it, uh, they get converted. And so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a small way to think about the gospel. It's not just so that hearts and minds can kind of get transferred from darkness into the kingdom, but we preach the gospel not just so that people's hearts and minds get changed, which, by the way, is a huge deal. I'm not trying to minimize that um, and say that's, that's a small deal. It's not, that's a big deal, but it's a small uh, usage of just the gospel. The gospel isn't just preached by us so that hearts and minds get changed, which, by the way, is huge. But we also preach it so that entire cultures of society gets changed. So we don't want to just see hearts and minds get changed, which we do, right? And if, if that's all that happens, we'll praise God till he comes and gets us. But we also want to see large-scale societal things happening so that the gospel is just so... We want to open our minds to the vastness of it so that when we preach Christ to people, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we, we want people to change over from death to life, but we want the gospel and to see the gospel as such a pervasive thing that when it hits a city, the entire city's changed and the social norms of the city start changing. That people are so shaken by this faith that they've believed in that the way that they live their life is absolutely pervasive in the way that the culture changes in the city. So when we're looking at this today, we're going to see at least four, four different ways that because of Paul's faithful gospel ministry of two years, of course people get, get saved, people's lives get changed, but the, the culture, the city itself is shaped in four different ways. And so... I, w- I want you to see those things, and this is a little bit different. Um, the way I'm going to uh, kind of couch the outline is instead of just saying, this got changed, this got changed, this got changed, this got changed, um, I'm going to pr- say, this is what got changed, so let's pray that that particular thing gets changed in our city. And after each one of those four, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pray in the sermon four different times that that happens in our city. So... The gospel, uh, if you grew up, at least when, when I grew up, was just preached in such a way that we wanted people just to get saved. And we want that. And I want to keep doing that. But we also want to proclaim and uh, tell others the gospel so that it actually changes the city. It changes societal norms. And so uh, today, 
we're, we're praying for prayers for gospel advance is what we're looking at. We're going to pray for or see four things that would change social norms in the city. So if we're looking at this in verse 21 through 22, before that start, the, the social norms that would change because of Paul's gospel work starts in verse 23. But I do want to start first by looking at Paul's travel plans. Luke wants us to see his travel plans. Verse 21, now after the defense, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. Let's go ahead and put up our map. I got my map every time uh, so we can understand. So uh, here we are in Paul's third missionary journey. He started out in Antioch and he went over here to the city of Ephesus right here. And he wants to get up to Macedonia again in Philippi. He wants to get back up there because... This third missionary journey is different than the first two. The first two was very much an evangelistic endeavor, hitting new cities, going to places where they hadn't heard. Now he's kind of going back through the cities that he's been before. And when he's going, he's, he's, wanting, to, uh, he's wanting to strengthen the disciples. Now, Ephesus is a new city, no doubt. But he wants to get up to Macedonia. And so, um, but nevertheless, he's stopping in Ephesus. And it says here, now after these events, Paul resolved from the Spirit to pass through uh, up to Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, and, then, and then to go to Jerusalem. And then after that, saying that, he goes, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. So he's wanting to go to just the, in his mind, the ends of the earth. We actually know uh, after Rome, he literally wants to go to Spain, which for him and, and that, in the first century world, this is the most westerly kind of outpost of the entire Roman civilization that existed in Europe, which means for Paul basically this. For Paul, and it should be for us, there's literally no limits to where he should go and wants to go to preach the gospel. In his mind, there's no limit. Like he's going all the way over here from Jerusalem all the way as far as Spain. And that, in his mind, is literally uh, no limits. No, there's, no, there's no closed doors that I'm presenting to God that he wants me to go and proclaim the gospel to people. The reason why, I think, is because Paul really did believe what he, what he wrote when he wrote in Romans 10 this. How then... Will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And he literally believed that whenever he came, he brought a beautiful message to brand new places as far as Spain. That when he preached the gospel, in God's mind, kind of the way that he thinks about it, that... Paul or anyone that's going into these hard places are literally how beautiful are the fruit that are bringing this amazing good news to people. And so that's why uh, I think we see these, these travel plans that, that Luke wants to give us through the power of the Holy Spirit is that he wants us to understand that there's no limits for Paul and there shouldn't be any for us. In verse 22, having sent uh, two into Macedonia, two into his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. So he sends them up to Macedonia and he stays here in Ephesus and Ephesus, and here's what we see. And this will be the first kind of effect of, the, of social norms. At about that time, there rose no little disturbance. Now, they, this is just a Hebrew idiom. So when you see no little, it means really large. This, it, there's, it's used twice here. Uh, when it says no little disturbance of the way, it sounds like Star Wars talking. There's no little disturbance of the force. It's a, but it says the way. Uh, and then it, Yoda voice. And then uh, it also, in verse 24, it said, made no little business to the craftsmen. Uh, that means it made a lot of money. So here you have, uh, about that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way, that's Christianity, um, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's the local lowercase god in Ephesus, brought he, no little bu- business to the craftsmen. So he made silver 
Uh, and a lot of people made these silver shrines, and they made a lot of money off the idolatry of the people of Ephesus. And so uh, they, they needed people to be idolatrous. It was very lucrative business for them, for the people of Ephesus, to be quite idolatrous. And so Paul comes in preaching the gospel anti-idols. So what do you think is going to happen to these guys? They're going to lose their cash flow and they're not going to like that whatsoever. And so he stands up and he says, and you see in here, um, I'm sorry, verse 25, and he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades. And he said, men, uh, this is Demetrius, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Um, so it, there's nothing at all uh, very... Um, very nice here, right? He's not, he's not, obviously, he's not, he doesn't care about the people at all. He's not saying, you know that this is our religion, right? He says, this is how we make our money. Let's make, keep making money. Um, so he's very, very selfish. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, Paul's persuaded and turned away. Many people saying that gods that are made with hands are not gods. I didn't think that that was really big new information, right? Um, if you can make something, if you, if you can create your own God with your hand, it's not a God. God can't be created. This is just like philosophy 101. But he's saying this like, this is, can you believe this? Um, and then it says in verse 27, there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that, the, and here's this, it's kind of backdoor, like I really do care about uh, the great goddess but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Boo-hoo. And from all, uh, she, from she whom all Asia and world, the world worship. So we have this, uh, this description of the temple of Artemis. Now, uh, this Artemis, she was the, uh, an Ephesian god. It was the local god. Every, every town kind of had theirs. We, we see that um, a great boulder fell from the sky... Uh, we, we know that this just means a meteor came. Like we saw that uh, in verse, where was it? Uh, there it is, in verse 35. Uh, and the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. So a meteor fell. We have the luxury of science today. A meteor fell and they shaped it into a, a, a temple, into a, a goddess. And they say, this is what we should worship. This rock that fell from the sky. Uh, and so... This, this temple that they had, well, first we should know, Ephesians was kind of a hub of economic life. It's modern-day Turkey, uh, and so it's it kind of sat in the middle where a lot of people can kind of come to it and a lot of trading grounds. You can go away from the map, back to the, the title. And so uh, this building that they had was 165 by 345 feet. The entire temple was elaborately ordained in gold. It was massive. It was four times the size of the temple of the Athena, which was the god of Athens. Um, and it was one of the, ranked as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, I mean, this thing is massive. It's just massive. And Paul is just totally undercutting any belief in this false god because of, uh, because of his preaching of the gospel there. And so what's clear is that uh, Artemis and the, and the god of money are, are closely tied together in Ephesus. And so Paul comes preaching the gospel, saying that basically gods that are made with hands are not gods. Um, there's a quote by Matt Chandler uh, talking about this guy Demetrius. He says, I would love to meet this guy Demetrius and have him over for dinner because one of two things just happened. 
either he legitimately believes when he's making these silver images that he's really making a god, or he knows that he just got busted by Paul. And either way, he's undeterred from continuing trying to keep doing this action. And he wants to know why you're doing this. I don't know which one's crazier. He thinks that when you hammer silver into a shape of a building, um, that you're actually making a god. And so uh, when we're looking here, Paul has has made comments about this guy Demetrius, and he's really doing, he's really kind of made two attacking arguments against this. Number one, or two things that he's attacking Demetrius on. One, he's attacking Demetrius' prophets. The second thing is he's attacking Demetrius' reputation. And then the third thing that Paul's attacking, it's not really Demetrius-related, but it's Artemis-related, is that he's trying to say that uh, Artemis' glory deserves to be robbed, because it's not hers in the first place. It's it's, it's God's. And so um, Demetrius loves dollars and not doctrine. And so he wants to try to uh, raise, or raise up these people so that they get mad at Paul and want to kill him. Now, uh, what's, the, what's the thing here that we need to look at is this. So here's the first thing. You can go ahead and put up the first prayer. Is this. Um, we want to pray that the gospel would come and change the landscape of our local economy and attack the wealth of idol makers. This, when the gospel was preached by Paul, the economy changed. People, so many people got saved that less people went and bought idolatrous idols. And whenever they went and bought less idolatrous idols, those evil people that were making money with evil intent off of people's idolatry worship, their money started going away. And when their money started going away, they got mad. But that's good. The gospel, when it comes into a city, it doesn't just doesn't just save people. Those people that get saved are so shaped by what they believe now that they stop indulging into idolatrous practices. And it sh- changes the economy. And that's what happened in, in Ephesus. The economy literally changed. The people that sold idols were not making money anymore. And so the gospel actually changed the landscape of the economy in the city of Ephesus. Matt Chandler continues to say this. What, what just happened in Ephesus is that Paul has proclaimed the word of God and the spirit of God has moved in such a way that people who are making money off sinful gain are no longer making money off sinful activities. The whole socioeconomic climate of Ephesus has, by the gospel, been turned on its head so that if you're in the line of business that made money off lying and cheating and exploiting, you are no longer able to make money that way so that those who made money off such things rioted against the gospel. And then he asks a question. Can you imagine... If the gospel had so penetrated our city that the word of God had so, gone so out so forcefully by the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit that there's no longer money to be made in things like strip joints and escorts. There was no longer any money to be made in that because there was no longer any clientele because the word of God had so transformed the hearts and lives of the men and women in the city. Now wouldn't that be awesome? And so this is what we see here. This is an effect, an outworking of the proclaimed gospel in this particular city. Is that the entire local economy is changed for the better, for the gospel, for for the glory of Christ. People who have been saved by God no longer want to buy and indulge in sinful things anymore. They want to buy and indulge in Christ-honoring things. And it literally changes the entire local economy. And so here's the question. Here's the question. What forms of financial spending in our lives need to be confronted by the gospel? 
what forms of financial spending in our lives need to be confronted by the gospel so that our local economy, Lord willing, would be changed. That's the first outworking or the first uh, effect of the social norms in the the preaching of the gospel is that the entire local economy was changed. So I'm going to pause and if you will pray with me and we'll pray that this would happen. That the gospel would be proclaimed so faithfully that literally our entire economy is changed for the glory of Christ. Jesus, we come to you now praying that you would use us and every Christ follower in the city of Rock Hill. That we would be so filled with the spirit and so shaped by this gospel that you've saved us. That we would proclaim it faithfully to others. And that every sinful indulgence in the city of Rock Hill is no longer paid for, no longer sought after, and no longer needed so that every single one of the sinful things in our city no longer have clientele and they are shut down because people aren't there. They're just not there. They would rather give glory to to Christ with their lives and not buy and participate in sinful things. We pray that that would happen, that the gospel would shape the economic uh, outworkings of the city of Rock Hill. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's what we see here. Um, In Ephesians, as Paul writes back to the Ephesians later on, he knows that this great temple is uh, is an idol in their lives. In Ephesians 2, uh, 20, 21, 22, as he keeps going, he's saying that Christ is the cornerstone of us Because we are being built up into a holy temple. This is not accidental language of Paul, right? He knows that the temple, the great Artemis temple, is a huge deal in their lives. And so he plays on that in saying that we are actually built up by Christ. And we're being built up into a holy temple. Uh, And Tony Morita makes this comment by saying the power of Christ and his people stood and now stands. In stark contrast to the renowned Ephesian temple. That there was this idolatrous Ephesian temple that people sought after to make their wealth, but because we've been so transformed by Christ, we're literally being built up into a holy temple, and that temple is far more amazing, far more stark, far more honoring, far more powerful than this idolatrous temple in the city of Ephesus. That's the first thing that we see, is that the economic uh, outworkings of the city were changed. The next thing that we see is that uh, belief systems... And false gods are also being destroyed. So in the very end of that, that verse that we just read in 27, it says, And there's danger that not only this trade of ours may become disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis, here it is, may be counted as nothing, verse 27b, this great Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, whom, she, whom all Asia and the world worship. This is false worship. This is... Uh, wrong worship. And so the second thing that we want to see is that the gospel would come and destroy false gods and false belief systems. This, this uh, Artemis should be deposed of her magnificence. She deserves no glory whatsoever. And so, and neither do any false gods or, or uh, belief systems in our, in, our, uh, in our contemporary culture. If anything is contrary to the gospel of Christ, it does not deserve to be worshipped. And it says, all of Asia and the world were worshipping. Now, I don't know if that's a a little bit of an exaggeration or not. 
meant to just kind of gin up the crowd and get them super mad. But nevertheless, it probably had some, some ring of truth. We were, and we all have been created to worship, but not created to worship idols. Uh, as Jordan read, and I want to read over again in Psalm 115, every single one of us will worship, and we will become what we worship. As Jordan read in Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. They're asking, where's your God? How come we can't see him? We can see ours. Look, he's right there. I've made a little silver shrine of him. Or he's, there he is. Where's yours? We can't see him. And he's like, why would they ask that? Our God's in the heavens. He's, he's as vast as you can see, uh, as, as you can imagine. And it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Like they, they, they create something and they worship this little thing that they've made. And they, they have mouths, but they do not speak. I want you to, I want you to make sure you hear this. The things that, that he's mentioning, they're created to do. They're literally not doing them. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. This is false idols. The promises that they make can never be kept. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they make no sound in their throat. All the promises of idols are empty promises. They cannot do what they say they claim to do. They are incapable of capturing your heart um, in a way that brings glory to Christ. They never, ever, ever keep their promise to you. Things are going to be awesome. Because after you indulge, you realize it was not awesome and you feel terrible. And it says this. Those who make them... Those who make those, these particular idols, whatever it is, and you, don't think of fashioning some little, you know, monopoly piece, right? Don't think that, right? Think of whatever idol you go after. And it's not some kind of thing you can hold in your hand. Every one of us have these tendencies towards certain idolatries. Those who make them become like them. So whatever idol you follow, you become more like it. We become what we worship. So that said positively, if we worship Jesus, good news we become more like Jesus. Those who make them become like them. And the reverse is true. When we worship Christ, we become more like him. So do all who trust in them. And so we're made to worship. We're made to worship Christ, not our idols. And so we want to see this happen in our city. We want to see false gods and false belief systems be destroyed. So let's, let's ask the questions here. What are the idols in our lives? What are we trusting instead of Christ? And the way that we identify those things is to think and ask and pray the Lord to reveal these things. And the way that we kill these things, I think, is through new affections. The new life in Christ when we trust in the gospel. The new life that he offers us. The new life itself awakens affections in our hearts and minds, and that's the best defense I think we have against these sins. The new affections that we have for Jesus comes from the life that he gives us. There's, there's a, professor, a, a, a pastor a long time ago, at least 100 years ago, had, a, had an illustration about this new life that we get. And this illustration, I think, is just, it's just unbelievable. Um, about how literally the new life itself drives us to new affections, which kills these things, these idolatrous impulses in our lives. And as we kill the idolatrous impulses in our lives, we preach the gospel and we can see 
false gods be destroyed and false belief systems be destroyed. This is what he says. Shortly after the armistice of World War I, he visited the battlefields of Belgium in the first year of the war area around the city of Mons was the scene of the great British retreat in the last year uh, it was the scene of the great German retreat for miles to the west of the city where roads were lined with artillery tanks trucks and other materials of the war which the Germans had abandoned in their hasty flight and it was a lovely day that he had come to this particular time in spring the sun was shining not a breath of wind was blowing and he walked along uh, examining these German war materials and he noticed that leaves in the spring leaves were falling from the trees that arched above the road. And he brushed out a leaf that had blown against his chest. And it became caught in the belt of his uniform. And he picked it up. Uh, and he picked it out and he pressed it out with his fingers. And then it just completely disintegrated. It was dead in the spring. And so he says this. He looked up curiously and he saw several other leaves falling from the trees. It wasn't fall. It wasn't autumn. There was no wind to blow them off. They were leaves that had outlived all, the, outlived all the winds of autumn and all the frost of the winter, and they'd stayed on the tree. Now they were falling seemingly without any kind of cause. Then he realized that the most potent force of all was causing these leaves to fall. It was spring. The sap was beginning to run. The buds were beginning to push from within inside the tree down Deep, uh, down beneath the dark earth, the roots were taking life and sending it out to all the trunks and all the branches and all the twigs of that tree, pushing out until all of life started expelling all of the deadness that remained from the previous year. The dead leaves were falling off because the new life inside the tree was pushing away the deadness inside the tree, the greatest force that would kill anything dead. This was what the great Scottish preacher termed the expulsive power of new affections. The new life inside the tree was what was killing off anything that remained as dead. Move that over to the spiritual life. The new life that we've been given in Christ is the expulsive power of the new affections in us. And that's what inside of us pushes off all the vestiges and all the remains of the old life, the deadness that's in us, the sinful practices in our life. The new life itself in us kills the sin of idolatry in us. And just so you know, the Bible speaks of us like this all the time. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we're a new creation. Ephesians 2.15 says that we are the new man. Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 says that we have been given a new self. Revelation 21.5 says that he's making all things new. So the newness that's in us the new life, the, the new man, the new self, the, the all things that are being made new, the newness in us where Christ is awakening up all of our affections for him is going to be the thing that pushes out and kills the idolatry in our lives. And we want to pray that these new affections would be stirred in us to kill off any old sense of idolatry, not just in ourselves, not just in our lives, but when we preach the gospel into this city. That the newness in us would be the thing that kills the idolatrous practices. So the second thing is, pray for the gospel to come and destroy false gods and completely destroy false belief systems. Let's pray for this. Father, our city is filled with false belief systems. From works righteousness to just outright utter paganism. 
But the gospel is good news. And the gospel destroys these things. It destroys these things in believers' lives because the new life we've been given will kill off the deadness and sin in us. But it also destroys these things in our city. This is what happened in this city. The gospel was preached so that rightly, Artemis, this false god of fertility, was deposed of her magnificence. And the name of Jesus, who deserves all the worship, was being raised up and praised. We pray that that would be the case in our city. That any false belief systems in Rock Hill, York County, South Carolina, North Carolina, would be destroyed. And the only true God, Jesus Christ, would be known and lifted high. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we see the response here. Uh, Artemis does a good job of stirring up everybody. I'm sorry, Demetrius does a good job of stirring up everybody. In verse 28, it says this, When they heard this, they were enraged and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, this is a scream of declaration of absolute abhorrent evil. Anything that we scream out worship to that's not Jesus is abhorrent evil. And I just wanted to point it out that they screamed this out in verse 28. They're enraged and they begin crying out a cry in their mind of heartfelt worship to an absolute false god. And then we also see it in verse 34. But here, they are so stirred up towards their idolatry. They had such a long pattern of desire towards their idolatry. Whenever uh, this guy Alexander, he probably wasn't a Christian, but probably just uh, still in the religion of Judaism, tries to stand up and wants to make a offense. He wants to try to quiet things down. They don't want to hear what he has to say. In verse 34, it says, uh, they recognize that he was a Jew. Listen to this. This is just obstinate, unbelievable, rebellious, just evil, evil screaming. For two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, we weren't there, right? So you hear somebody that they screamed out for great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. You're not necessarily moved, right? But think of if your, your family member, someone deep, deeply close to you that you love, for two straight hours would just willfully scream out false praise and worship to any kind of false god. Or whenever you, the people you love just willingly give in to just reckless, sinful, destructive uh, behavior. How, how much it pains you. That's, that's what I'm wanting to bring us to and help us see that the... And I don't mean this in, in a, in a uh, pejorative sense. I mean this in the most uh, correct definitional way. Ignorance, complete ignorance, no knowledge. They have no knowledge of what is, what, is, what is true, what is right, what is real. That their hearts scream out in false worship to a God. And that should break us, that should move us. The ignorance of people, true, no knowledge of people, should break us and, and cause us to be sad for them. Sad to where we have to do something. But the gospel is the answer. And so we want to pray that the gospel would go to these kinds of people, 28 and 34, that are just so recklessly following false idols. Probably without knowledge of it. That the gospel would come and confront their ignorant minds. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that in a faithful sense. Their ignorant minds and change 
the people's hearts in our city. So here's the third thing. When we look at that happening, when we look at that happening, this is what our third prayer. Number three, pray for the gospel to confront ignorant minds and change people's hearts in our city. When we see that happening, I mean, I can't even imagine watching someone willfully, worshipfully, wrongfully, worshipfully, screaming out for two straight hours, praise and worship, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Or just, just put it into any kind of contemporary thing that someone screams out for two straight hours in front of you in, in some kind of city riot, screaming out worship to anything other than Jesus for two straight hours. I can't even imagine what kind of heart has to, where a heart has to be, the evilness in, in the heart has to be to be able to do that. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. And it says that this happened for two straight hours. In verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the the Ephesians, so that the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed into the theater. This is a uh, moving of the streets into this theater. This theater probably, if you're from the south, south, it's a theater. Um, But it held probably uh, 25,000 people in this theater. Like 25,000, it's huge. So that means... That this riot that we're reading isn't some small-scale thing. I mean, this city held probably somewhere between 200 and 400,000 people. This theater held 25,000 people. So this riot was huge. And it should, if we were there, we would have been very fearful. It was very scary what was going on. At any moment, it could have just broke out into complete mayhem and people could have died. That's why they were so like trying to gather Paul and keep him pulled away. But here we see this. Um, this unbelievable display of false worship where they scream out for two hours, great as Artemis of the city. And what I want to do, ask a couple questions. They're crying out in this false worship, false worship because the gospel for two years had been sowed in this city in such a way that it eventually confronted their own idolatrous hearts and they became completely enraged by it. Uh, but what is it that they're actually enraged by? Are they enraged at the gospel? Yes. But also, their way of life, their idolatrous way of life had finally been challenged to where they realized, probably for the first time, what I've been putting my life and stock into is completely false and fake. And usually, when that happens, people become angry. Sometimes they fall on their face and say, I'm, I'm so remorseful, please forgive. But that's usually not the case. They, they don't say that. They become enraged. Now, I want to juxtapose that, right? Let's take that, what's going on in verse 28 and 34, this unbelievable worship of a false god, and juxtapose it back over to verse 23 about this thing called the way. The way. Let's just put those two together. Unbelievably false worship versus Christianity. Um, One commentator says this. Unbelievers in Ephesus perceived in the Christian community... uh, a shape that was definable, one they called the way. It stood out and it beckoned for attention. It pointed to a way of life that was different in a direction that was diametric to that of the majority. It was a different road than most traveled. It revealed a pattern of self-denial and a cross-bearing. It utterly focused on Jesus Christ, not Artemis or any false god. It was patterned after an ethic alien to the natural man and the world despised it. The world despised it. And so I don't want us to uh, have a false notion here. Okay, when we preach the gospel to our city and we're confronting ignorant minds and begging God to change people's hearts, the reaction still could be this way. Anger towards this. This is very biblical. Very biblical. 
Whenever we proclaim the gospel, as 2 Corinthians says, uh, it's the same message. And to those that are being saved, it's the aroma of life. And to those, it's the exact same words. To those that are not being saved, it's the aroma of death. And those people get angry at it. We're not changing the words. We're not telling them really nice words and telling them really bad words. We're saying the same words. And to those that are being saved, it's the aroma of life. And to those that are not being saved, it's the aroma of death. And they have appropriate reactions according to this gospel. But uh, the way is saying in John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, 4, 12, that the only way is Christ. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. And it confronts people in such a way that they find it absolutely intolerable that that could be the case. Absolutely intolerable that this one true God, Jesus, is saying he is the only way to life. There, There is no other way. And so when we hold those two beside each other, what happens is they do stuff like this. They scream out in absolute anger and ignorance for two hours that their God's great when it's not. When it's not, it should break our hearts and minds to know that that's the case. So let me ask one question. The way stood out and beckoned for attention. That's what this commentator said. The way stood out and it beckoned for attention. The way is Christianity. It's following Jesus. It's the gospel in our lives. The good news of Christ and trusting it. Is the way that I'm living my life and is the way that you're living your life beckoning for attention. Whenever people around us hear and understand the good news because we are living it out. Are we living in such a way that it's literally beckoning them to come and ask questions? Is it beckoning them to say, your way's different than mine. Explain that to me. Their reaction still might be like these people. Well, I don't like what you're saying. That seems offensive. I understand. I don't want you to be offended. The gospel's offensive. I can't change that. But Jesus died for you. So we still want to uh, be humble to them and, and be winsome to them. But we even live in a way that it's actually beckoning for attention. We even live in a way that's beckoning for attention. We want the gospel to confront ignorant minds and change people's hearts. So uh, this is kind of like the old school way that I heard the gospel preached, you know, changing hearts and minds. This is what the third one is. And it's still what we want. We still want for people to be changed. Not just all things in society, but people to be changed. Let's pray for this too. Lord, we all have people in our hearts and lives and that we love. I mean, we just love desperately that don't know you. And, and, and even, God, there's people in our hearts and lives that maybe we don't really like, but we're supposed to because you tell us to. And nevertheless, we pray that you would cultivate a love in our hearts for them. But God, uh, we pray that we would live lives out loud in front of them in such a way that it beckons their hearts and minds to want to look at us and say, your, your way, your belief, your Christ, this God you follow is different than anything I've ever heard or experienced because he is. I mean, Jesus, you are the only way. Every other God is a false God and you're the only one true God. And so the way we live our lives should beckon their hearts and minds to want to know you. They were created for that. And so God, we pray that we would um, be so faithful that you would change people's hearts and minds in our city by using us as your mouthpieces and your ambassadors to this world. We praise in Jesus' name, amen.
Now, when we do that, we want and desire and, and would love for Jesus to actually uh, cause their hearts to respond in faith. Not in, in anger, but in faith. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and, Ar- and uh, Ar- Aristarchus, Aristarchus uh, you know, we don't know, uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Watch this, verse 31. <clears throat> Even some of the Asiarchs, Asiarchs, look at your little one, look at the, your little down thing here. That is, high-ranking officers in the province of Asia. Hear this now. There were no Christians two years before this. Paul dropped in, he parachuted in, preached the gospel so faithfully, high-ranking officials in the city of Asia became believers. And loved Paul so much that when a 25,000-person riot broke out, these high-ranking officials, who probably had, didn't even have to be there, knew Paul, and they're standing there in front of all the other people, putting their own kind of position in jeopardy, saying, Paul, don't go into that, you'll, you'll get hurt. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to get hurt. This is um, a belief that happened because of the work of Paul on, on big scales. I mean, this is an amazing thing. The Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and urging him not to venture into the, to the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, another, etc. You, you know, we've seen Alexander tries to get up, and they scream for even longer. But there were people that had no interest in the gospel, that Paul preached the gospel, that did believe. They readily accepted Christ. They did not outright reject the gospel. They actually became believers because of Paul's hard work. And it paid off. I mean, Paul didn't go into it, and... He lived longer. He could have died there. I mean, at any moment, it's going to break. And so, we see here that the good gospel work of Paul for two years actually pays off, and there are people being saved, even high-ranking officials. And so, we want, in our own lives, to pray that the gospel would be readily accepted by people in our lives. It doesn't just have to be the high-ranking people, right? It can be the people that nobody's ever met that like us, like we're never, maybe one of you is going to be the president one day, but likely none of us, right? In three generations, no one's going to know our names, not even our great grandkids, which is fine, right? Christ knows your name. And so, uh, but we want to be preachers of the gospel in such a way that it's readily accepted, that it's readily accepted. And so that's the fourth, that's the fourth prayer. It's pray for the gospel to be readily accepted and not rejected. Pray for the gospel to be readily accepted, not outright rejected by our city. That's what happened here. Um, Tony Morita says, What do people do when their idols are threatened? If they don't repent and look to Jesus, like the Asiarchs do, they get angry, and instead of saying Jesus Lord, they find a new profession, uh, and chaos ensues. The, a- the Asiarchs here didn't... Uh, reject Christ and said they did repent. They did look to Christ. They cast down all of their idols. They started following Jesus and in such a way that Paul's fruitful ministry uh, pays off and even the higher-ups of the city government are beckoning him, that were converted, beckoning him uh, in order to keep him safe, not to go into this particular outcry in the city. What happens in the end? We see this in, very, in the very end, 20, 35. The town clerk 
he gets up and wants to restore order. Because in, in, Rome, in, in this particular time, when city riots happened, the Roman officials would just come in and just destroy everyone, right? And they, the Roman government carried a strong sword, and they didn't want that. And this was illegal. They wanted everyone to be in complete submission underneath their thumb. And so everybody's getting nervous, these town officials. So the town clerk gets up, and men of Ephesus, uh, basically, these guys aren't necessarily down-talking your, 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 your Artemis, chill out. Calm down. We're, we're in super trouble, uh, almost, uh, verse 40. We're in real danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause that we can give to justify that riot, we need to, we need to put this thing down. We need to, everybody needs to go home before we all get in trouble with the Roman government. And he said these things and dismissed the assembly. Uh, I, I just want to point out, the town clerk uh, certainly was the sovereign mouthpiece of God here. He's not just some random dude who's just really awesome, Right? He is uh, the sovereign mouthpiece of God, the city official used to quiet down this hostile environment, to end the riot, so that Christianity would continue to flourish. Which means they don't have to be Christians to be used by God. Which, you know, we see all the time. We see all the time. God is sovereign and he works not just through Christians, but even through non-Christians. And so, as we end, uh, I just want to... Uh, pray for us that, that the gospel would be readily accepted as we proclaim the gospel <clears throat> and that we would be men and women who are faithful in our gospel ministry. I just want to remind you all here, all of this, this entire riot is predicated on two years of faithful ministry of Paul. No two years of faithful ministry, no riot, no nothing. Everybody's still just complete idol worshipers. But because of two years of faithful ministry at his own dime, this happened, and we see that the gospel is actually doing major work in the city. Major work in the city. This story shows us, as Tony Marita says, how we advance the kingdom of Christ in our cities. It's not by weapons or force or by violence. Paul preaches the gospel. People get converted. They renounce sin and idolatry. And by the power of the Spirit, the whole social order is impacted. Remember, they were burning their books last week, right? They were bur- Well, for us last week. They were burning their books last week, right? So... They mean, this is true for them. We, we're not, we don't want to do any kind of occult practices or sorcery anymore. We want to follow Christ faithfully. So Paul preached the gospel. People get converted. They renounce their sin and their idolatry and by the power of the Spirit. The whole social order in this city is impacted. So we should not underestimate if we want city change. I mean, real change. Uh, and I'm, this isn't a, America's awesome. This is Jesus is awesome, right? If we want... If we want real change in our lives, in whatever country you live in, I don't care if you live in America or Belgium or the Netherlands or whatever, right? Whatever country you live in, if you want to see that country that you love or that the Lord has sovereignly put you in, if you don't love it, uh, for that particular time period to be in, don't underestimate how to change that country. The simple preaching of the gospel. The simple, faithful preaching of the gospel, begging people to renounce sin and idolatry and to be converted and to be filled by the Spirit. And we keep exalting Christ in our cities and we see the exaltation of idols diminish and diminish and diminish. Let's pray. God, we we pray that there would not only be a faithful preaching of the gospel by our hearts, but a reception of the hearts of the people. That you would save them that they would be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son you love, 
that you would, as we proclaim this gospel, let our words when it goes out not fall into hearts that are angry at the words that we say. They wouldn't be words of death to those who are perishing, but all those who hear our message would be words of life because they are being saved. You're sovereign, you're in control, you are the giver of salvation, but God, we beg and plead with you that our words would go to receptive hearts and receptive ears and that they would trust and believe the gospel and that our city would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name.